The title of this evening's talk is Metta, the Heart's Release. And beginning with uh, some words from the Buddha, from the Samyutta Nikaya. It is in this way that we must train ourselves by liberation of the self through love. We will develop love. We will practice it. We will make it both a way and a basis. Take our stand upon it. Store it up and thoroughly set it going. The Buddha Dhamma, the teachings and the practices, are about transforming the heart, transforming the mind. This evening we'll consider one of the important teachings and practices of this transformation, which is classically called a Brahma-vihara, that that, uh, translates as a divine abiding. The radiant warmth and openness of metta, unconditional loving-kindness and acceptance, unconditional friendship, the experience of an open-hearted connection that isn't fraught with clinging, attachment, and not even necessarily with any sense of obligation. This unconditional quality of mind and heart arises quite naturally when our mindful attention penetrates the layer of conditioning that shuts us down to others. It's also important to recognize that this capacity of metta is present when the focus of mindful attention is able to begin penetrating the layers of conditioning that keep one from connecting with one's own bodily and mental experiences with clarity and with kindness. And so we'll begin with an old story. It's said that the Buddha first taught metta to a group of 500 monks who went into a particular and seemingly very congenial forest for their three-month rainy season retreat a forest that was adjacent to a village of very strong supporters who offered to build 500 huts for the monks monks to stay in during their rains retreat. And who were also um, very happy to keep the monks' alms bowls full uh, during their practice period. And so the monks moved in and began practicing insight meditation, began practicing vipassana. It's said uh, that the unseen unseen beings, the uh, forest devas, uh, who lived there in this particular area of the forest, became fearful of the monks and actually felt quite put out uh, of their home when they saw that the monks weren't just staying there 
visiting the forest for a day or two. And so these forest-dwelling devas um, began to create all kinds of frightening sounds and sights and emit uh, very distasteful odors, hoping that this would um, make the monks leave what they considered to be their forest. Well, soon enough, the monks became quite terrified which broke their samadhi, broke their concentration, and quite thoroughly disrupted their mindfulness. Some of them even developed fever and pain and dizziness in conjunction with the fear that they were experiencing. And all of them felt that it was just impossible to continue practicing where they were. So they went to where the Buddha was staying, and they related their tale. And the Buddha responded like this. He said, My beloved monks, go back to exactly that same forest and practice your meditation there. Well, the monks responded to the Buddha's words with pleading that they please, please not be sent back to the forest. Again, saying it was just impossible to practice there. Well, the Buddha's response to this was, Dear monks, Because you went there to practice meditation without a weapon of protection, you've encouraged many distractions and many difficulties. This time, however, the Buddha said, I'll give you a true weapon of protection. And it said that it was at this point that the Buddha offered them the metta teaching and the metta practice. Out of their great respect uh, for the Buddha, the monks at that point didn't dare contradict his wishes. And so, armed with the metta teaching and practice, they went back to the forest. And for a while, continued experiencing uh, fear and anxiety, while at the same time they very diligently and very virtuously practiced metta. Well, soon enough, there were no more fearful sights or sounds. Whereas the devas who had previously uh, been hostile towards the monks, the anger, their anger, the devas' anger and resentment disappeared when they began to feel the monks' metta. And in fact, feelings of respect and welcome and even reverence began to be the Deva's experience, along with a sense of feeling very connected, like with family. And the inclination rose, arose for these Devas to provide an environment of safety, to protect the monks from particular dangers such as tigers and poisonous snakes that might be lurking in the forest, so that the monks could practice meditation peacefully. After recovering and strengthening and deepening their concentration and their open-hearted presence through a very diligent metta practice, it's said that all 500 monks at some point began practicing samatha and vipassana again with metta 
as their foundation. And it said that because they were able to practice meditation calmly and peacefully, that they all, every one of them, became arhants, became fully enlightened beings during that rainy season retreat. So the great strength of a mind, a heart, protected through the energy of metta. This quality, this capacity to stay present and connected with a heart that's fearless, with a mind and a heart that's really free of ill will. Gandhi called it the most powerful and the most subtle force in the universe. Metta is the energy that allows for and brings connection. It's the energy, we could say, that keeps it all together. And this capacity is called for again and again and again throughout our practice, throughout our life. The practice and the energetic experience of metta is offered and felt as a natural, heartfelt wish directed towards oneself, another particular person, or a group of things. Wishing one's self and wishing others to be happy, to be at ease, to be safe and secure, to be at peace. In the process of developing, expanding, and deepening this energy of the heart, one of the things that we begin to taste is that our own wants, our own preferences, they begin to pale, to be a little bit uh, not so strong. They're, of course, important on one level. But within this incredible, radiant energy of warmth that begins to flow from our heart in the process of cultivating unconditional friendship and and acceptance, unconditional kindness and love, our personal wants and personal preferences begin to lose their usual intensity of almost always being very front and center. Sometimes my experience of the unconditional human kindness of metta is like the sunshine. That warmth of the sun that permeates our outer and our inner sense of being. We could say that the practice of loving-kindness is akin to letting the sunshine warm our heart, warm our whole being, and then at some point radiating this quality out to the world around us. So where does the capacity to connect, to cultivate, to live with unconditional friendship, unconditional acceptance and kindness. Where does it come from? 
It comes from our own experience of kindness. The experience of receiving kindness from others. It comes from our own experience of receiving warmth, of receiving love that's been given freely to us from others. If you had never, ever experienced this unconditional kindness, you would have an extremely difficult time with this practice. But really, such people are very, very rare. And in fact, living beings, all living beings, literally can't survive very long without some degree of the care and the kindness being given to them. It's an absolute necessity for life. Every one of us in this room has experienced at least some kindness given to us, some love, some warmth given freely. So a very ordinary example a very simple, ordinary experience that happens to me actually quite often. Um, a day or two before this retreat began, I walked into the local post office to pick up my mail. And someone was walking in just, just a couple of steps in front of me and opened the door and held the door open for me. And I didn't know this person. I'd never seen them before. And we looked directly at each other, and we smiled, and I thanked her, and I felt this very, very lovely, warm connection between us. Just that. That's metta. That's unconditional kindness at a certain level. And each one of us, of course, has experienced kindness, this unconditional kindness, with people that we know and with people that we're close to. Very likely kindness expressed with a more overt and stronger energy. So this is where the seeds come from. These are the seeds that are planted in us that we cultivate. The seeds that we've been given The kindness, the seeds of kindness that we've been given is the kindness that we grow, that we water, that we fertilize, that we cultivate by giving metta to ourselves and then by offering it out to others. It's really, it's a circle. It's like a transmission. We've been given the transmission through the kindness offered to us from others. And we grow it, we cultivate it, and we give it out, offering the transmission back out again. It's this essential and beautiful circle. The kindness that we receive and also the kindness that we give It's always a gift. Every instance of unconditional loving-kindness given to us 
involves people giving us their time, their care, their support, in some way their help. Unconditional kindness given freely, it's a choice, a very natural choice that others make and that we make. And it has an effect on us. And it has an effect on others. Metta is really the ground, the bed, so to say, that all of the other immeasurable capacities of heart spring from. The three other divine abidings. And these are compassion, karuna and pali, appreciative or empathetic joy, mudita in pali, and equanimity, upeka in pali. It's also the capacity of heart, the capacity of mind, that allows the whole breadth of our meditation practice to unfold. To unfold both from and into. Metta is what engenders the qualities of open-heartedness, acceptance, kindness, patience, with each and every one of these qualities being an essential ground for us throughout the practice and the process of liberation. When I was in China in 1986, I found out that the contemporary Chinese written character for love was developed out of two ancient pictographs or symbols. And the top symbol was a very simple, uh, a simple symbol representing a person breathing, a symbol for breath. The bottom symbol was one for the heart. So, based in ancient Chinese pictographic writing, the character for metta-love is breath through the heart. With the cultivation of metta, we're moving towards or we're inviting the opening, the expansion of the heart of the mind. And continuing with the metaphor of breath, metta is kind of like the experience of breath moving through us. It's intangible. It's boundless. It's empty. Where from? Where to? And yet it's a very powerful energy that moves within us and from us. So what is it? In the Buddhist text, it's often spoke about um, or spoken of as uh, non-ill will. The absence of ill will in relationship to ourself, meaning the absence of ill will in relationship to all of the phenomena of one's body and mind, however uh, they're manifesting moment to moment. And the absence of ill will towards others. So 
no aversion in any direction, meaning no comparing ourselves in relationship to others. No comparison, no conceit, no pride, no self-depreciation, and no self-judgment. And no judgment or depreciation of others. So again, the absence of ill will in all directions. Here in retreat, I think that sometimes we aren't always sitting with a heart full of metta in relationship maybe to all of the other yogis here in retreat. How often might we think, for instance, that the person maybe next to us or maybe the person on the other side of the room, how often might we think that their practice is so much better than mine? Or maybe the comparing mind says, that person isn't practicing nearly as well as I am. So that that felt judgment, they're better than me, or I'm no good, or I'm great, no sleepiness, no movement, just look at that person over there nodding away, restless, moving around. Well, quite obviously this is not metta. What are we doing? What we're doing is creating a separation. Me, other. And the heart and the mind are contracted. And if we take a look, it's uncomfortable. And so we mindfully recognize and acknowledge that this too is part of our practice. And we learn that one way to attend to the suffering of separation One way to attend to the ache of self-centeredness is to offer oneself metta and also to offer the other person in the equation metta. One of the most striking aspects of metta, and maybe surprisingly so, is that metta is impersonal in nature. Even in relationship to what we think of as our self, (coughs) what we're identified with and attached to either in a positive way or a critical way as our self, meaning our body, our thoughts, ideas, opinions, skills, our knowledge, Metta is impersonal in nature in relationship to other beings as well. A heart, a mind that's filled with metta has the capacity to impartially embrace all beings. Not only those who we're close to in our life, those who it's easy to care about, or those who maybe might be useful or maybe amusing or maybe pleasing to us. 
but the possibility of embracing all beings in this unconditional kindness. A heart, a mind filled with metta holds the possibility of a capacity for what can be called immeasurable impartiality. This capacity of being able to connect and to care for any being, all beings. <clears throat> and some words from the great Indian uh, teacher Krishnamurti's meditation journal. <clears throat> Meditation is one of the most extraordinary things. It's not an intellectual affair, but when the mind enters into the heart, the mind has quite a different quality. It's really then limitless. It's a sense of living in a vast space where you're part of everything. Meditation is the movement of love. It isn't the love of the one or of the many. It's like water that anyone can drink out of any jar, whether golden or earthenware. It's inexhaustible. And you must begin without knowing anything about it and move from innocence to innocence. The mind, the heart of metta, connects and accepts. It's non-critical, non-judgmental. Metta has no interest in comparing or fixing. It allows things to just be as they are, with an inner sense of well-being and patience and acceptance. Metta and aversion, consequently metta and aversion, can't exist simultaneously. As you're practicing here in this retreat, in the very specific ways that each of you are practicing towards cultivating a concentrated clarity of attention, cultivating and strengthening a clear and penetrating mindfulness, practicing metta itself, Some of you, along with whatever other practices you are engaging in, are also uh, working to some degree with metta in relationship to its purifying and healing qualities. And with this, you're learning that metta practice also aids the development of our capacity for a clear, deep, and strong concentrated, mindful attention. As our capacity for metta grows and blossoms, there's an unwinding, an unbinding of the heart and mind from states of fear, states of anger, judgment, states of separation, disconnection. These strong, afflictive energies that move through the mind, the heart, and the body that we explored to some degree last night 
in, in a somewhat different way, begin to unwind, to weaken, to fade, and even eventually to dissolve under the strong medicine of the heart of metta, concentration, and mindfulness. Someone once asked the great Indian spiritual teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj, and as I mentioned, he often taught in dialogue with his students. So one of his students asked him a question. He asked the student, I don't know if it was a male or female, uh, what can make me love? And Nisargadatta Maharaj's response was, you are love when you're not afraid. You are love when you're not afraid. Something that was amazing and (coughs) quite important for me (coughs) when I began to discover it is that metta doesn't necessarily depend on initially liking someone or approving of them. In fact, it has nothing to do with approving of. With the heart of metta, we're able to connect with beings beneath that with which we might not agree with, or connect with beings who may act in ways that we might not like or even might not condone. Metta is acceptance on a very deep universal level, but not necessarily approving. There aren't any favorites. No favoring one over the other with metta. So it's, it's not divisive. Metta is a unifying energy. It brings things together. It's goodwill towards all beings, all sentient beings. This most subtle and powerful energy in the universe. And so from this we can really begin to understand that it's impersonal in nature. And that it's unconditional. Meaning no conditions needing to be met for metta to manifest. So reflecting for just a moment, if there was no metta in this world, the world would have flown apart, would have broken apart long ago. There have been periods throughout our human history up to and including uh, this very moment when there's been more or less metta manifesting in the world. More peaceful times, times of relative ease in the world, and periods when the world has been or is increasingly unsettled, more violent times. This powerful energy of goodwill that unifies, that brings things together. So essentially necessary. The writer Dina Metzger says this, 
There are those who set fire to the world. We are in danger. There's no time to go slowly. There's no time not to love. And the Buddha said it perfectly. Hatred can never cease by hatred. Only through love alone can healing happen. This is a universal law. If metta is the ground, the basis, and the impetus that our thoughts, our words, and actions spring from, if our motivations and intentions spring from the heart of metta, the karma that's created will be wholesome and healing, both personally and in ways beyond our own small lives even in ways that we may never, ever know. I'd like to spend just a few moments now (coughs) exploring some of the expectations that we might uh, think the experience of metta is supposed to be. I think that many of us expect metta to be a a feeling, some very familiar felt sense. And of course our expectation is based on something that we're already familiar with. It's impossible to expect or to look for something that we don't know, something we've never experienced, or to look for something that we may actually have experienced but didn't label as unconditional loving-kindness or unconditional friendship, metta. Most certainly, sometimes metta can and does manifest as a familiar felt sense. No doubt about it. But we can get caught, we can get stuck in expecting this, and it's limiting. Metta is not sentimental. Metta is not romantic. These are both totally conditional experiences. And metta isn't even necessarily always a particularly juicy feeling. The mind, the heart, that's free from ill will, free from greed, fear, hatred, and anger in any given moment is a mind of stillness, the heart of peacefulness. It's in the absence of greed, in the absence of aversion. It's in the abiding stillness and peace (coughs) that metta arises. And it may not necessarily be a feeling that we think of or are familiar with as love. There's a great power and strength in the capacity to connect within ourself and in relationship to others directly, clearly, patiently, and fearlessly with a mind, a heart that's really free of ill will. 
we could say that this is metta. This unfettered, unconditional connection. And for any of us that have tried this practice or are engaged in it, it's not so easy. There are many, many layers of conditioning that need to be seen. Seen through and let go of along the way of our practice. And I certainly found over the years that the qualities of honesty and humility, as I've mentioned before, are essential if practice is to continue to unfold, reaping its most amazing and freeing benefits. There's a beautiful story in uh, one of the collections of the Buddha's teachings called the Anguttaranikaya. It's the story of Sariputta's lion's roar that demonstrates this quite clearly. Sariputta was one of the Buddha's two uh, chief disciples and foremost in terms of discernment and wisdom next to the Buddha. This story takes place just after the completion of the three-month rainy season retreat. And the monks were beginning to disperse for their various duties and responsibilities in other places. So I'd like to share this sutta with you. You've heard uh, uh, one aspect of it or a part of it in another context. You may recognize that as we go along. So this is Sariputta's Lion's Roar. On one occasion, the Blessed One, as the Buddha was, is called uh, in the suttas, was dwelling at Savati in Jetta's Grove at Anattapindika's monastery. And at that time, the venerable, venerable Sariputta approached the Blessed One. Having paid homage to him, he sat down to one side and said, I have now completed the rains retreat at Savati and I wish to leave on a country journey. And the Buddha replied, Sariputta, you may go whenever you're ready. And the Venerable Sariputta rose from his seat and bowed to the Buddha, and keeping him to his right, departed. Soon after Venerable Sariputta had left, one monk spoke to the Buddha, saying, The Venerable Sariputta has hit me and has left on his journey without an apology. Right away the Buddha called another monk and said, Go, monk, and call the Venerable Sariputta, saying, The Master calls you Sariputta. The monk did as he was bidden, and the Venerable Sariputta responded, saying, Yes, friend. Then two of the Buddha's other chief disciples, the Venerable Mahamogalana and the Venerable Ananda, went around to all of the monk's lodgings and said, Come, reverend sirs, come. For today, the Venerable Sariputta will utter his lion's roar in the presence of the Blessed One. The Venerable Sariputta approached the Buddha and after bowing to him, sat down to one side. And when he was seated, the Buddha said, One of your fellow monks here has complained that you hit him and left on your journey without an apology. The Venerable Sariputta responded, Lord, I remember the discourse you gave 
12 years ago to the Bhikkhu Rahula, that's the Buddha's son, when he was 18 years old. You taught him to contemplate the nature of earth, water, fire, and air in order to nourish and develop the virtues of love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Although your teaching was directed towards Rahula, I also learned from it. I have practiced and observed that teaching. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving-kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body, of the actions of the body in the actions of the body, and is not present, may well hit another monk and leave without an apology. Lord, I have practiced to be like the earth. Whether people throw clean substances, such as flowers, perfume, or fresh milk upon the earth, or foul substances like dung, urine, spittle, plus pus and blood. Yet for all that, the earth has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the earth, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I practice mindfulness and loving-kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body and is not present may well hit another monk and leave without an apology. But it is not my way to be rude to a fellow monk, hit him and walk on without apologizing. Lord, I have practiced to be like the water. People use water to wash things clean and unclean, things soiled with dung, urine, spittle, pus and blood, and yet for all that the water has no revulsion, loathing or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like water, vast, exalted and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness, who does not practice becoming like water, might hit a fellow monk and go on his way without saying, I'm sorry. I'm not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced to be more like fire. Fire burns things pure and impure, the beautiful as well as the distasteful. And yet for all that, the fire has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like fire, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness of seeing, hearing, thinking, might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced to be like the air. The air blows over things clean and unclean and carries all smells, pleasing and unpleasing. And yet for all that, the air has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like air, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I have practiced mindfulness of the body in the body, the movement of the body in the movement of the body, the positions of the body in the positions of the body, the feelings in the feelings, and the mind in the mind. One who does not practice mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. 
I am not such a monk. Lord, just as an untouchable boy or girl, begging vessel in hand, clad in rags, enters a village with a humble heart, even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is humble, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. I have practiced and learned every day. A monk who does not practice loving-kindness and mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Sariputta continued to deliver his lion's roar. At one point, the accusing monk rose from his seat, arranged his upper robe over one shoulder, and with his head on the ground, bowed at the feet of the Buddha, saying, Lord, I committed an offense when I was so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful. I accuse the venerable Sariputta falsely, wrongly, and untruthfully. Let the Blessed One and the Sangha accept my admission of the offense and pardon me, and I shall practice restraint in the future. And the Buddha responded, Truly, monk, you committed an offense when you were so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful that you accused Sariputta falsely, wrongly, and untruthfully. But as you have recognized your offense and make amends, we pardon you. It's a sign of growth when one recognizes one's offense and makes amends and in the future practices restraint. Then the Buddha turned to the Venerable Sariputta saying, Forgive this foolish man, Sariputta, before his head splits into seven pieces on this very spot. The Buddha doesn't make jokes very often, but sometimes. (laughs) And then Sariputta responded, I shall forgive him, Lord, if this revered monk also asks for my pardon. I may not have been skillful enough and may have created some misunderstanding. May he, too, forgive me. And then Sariputta and the accusing monk bowed three times to each other and reconciled. Metta is it's one of the best medicines. It's a very powerful medicine. Our human heart is intuitively, it's naturally loving. Concentration and kindness are absolutely natural human capacities. And we often see this in the smallest children. I was feeding one of my granddaughters when she was uh, seven months old, giving her pieces of banana. And she took one of the pieces from me and uh, put it in my mouth with a big smile erupting 
on her face as she proceeded to feed me. A very innocent and very pure expression of the heart of kindness. A while ago I read a book that was uh, about and by a 102-year-old African-American man whose name was George Dawson. He grew up on his family's farm in East Texas and he was the grandson of slaves. At the age of eight, George had to go to work to help support his family. So he never attended school and he never learned how to read. Until, at the age of 98, he attended a literacy program. And he learned how to read at the age of 98. And then he wrote a book about himself. (laughs) And it's an amazing and inspiring and illuminating book. George describes how he learn to read the world and to survive in it. So I'd like to uh, read a little bit of this book with you this evening. At one point, George is having a conversation with Richard, a man named Richard. Richard is the man who helped George write the book. And they're, they're talking together about George, who at the age of 101 was still living alone. And as George says, doing just fine. So this is the dialogue between the two of them, Richard speaking. You're not really alone. People call and come by all day long. There's a community of people that care about you. You live by yourself, but no, you're not alone. George speaking. That's right. You figured that out. Yes, it's nice that people stop by like they do, but... They do so because they want to. I have nothing to give them. But they always feel better when they leave. Richard. That sounds like a riddle. George. It does, doesn't it? I'll tell you the answer for that. All my life I've been good to people. In all those years, every person I've met, I've treated with respect. People do the same for me. Richard. What goes around comes around. George. That's right. It all comes back. Everything you do. Sometimes it might take a while. That's all. I tell people not to worry about things. Not to worry about their lives. That things will be all right. People need to hear that. Life is good just as it is. There isn't anything I would change about my life. Richard. People worry too much? George. That's right. Be happy. Be happy for what you have. Help somebody instead of worrying. It'll make a person feel better. It's good to be generous. It doesn't really take much to make a difference. Even the poorest person can just take the time to say hello. That can be a help. Have some sympathy for someone's hard luck story. It's not about money. Give what you can, and if you have nothing, at least pray for somebody. Have good thoughts. The cultivation, the practice of metta is metta itself. 
as an example of the stability and the beauty of a mind, a heart that's steeped in kind-heartedness. I'd like to continue on a bit more with our 102-year-old Bodhisattva, George Dawson. For much of his life, George endured a very pervasive racism and segregation in the South growing up in East Texas. During the time that he grew up there, East Texas had the highest rate of lynchings of any state in the Union. And actually the book, this George's book, begins when George was eight years old as he witnessed the lynching of a teenage boy who was one of his heroes. When George was 65 years old, he was doing yard work for a woman who had left his lunch out on the back porch with her dogs. And this is George speaking now. She didn't see me from the shadow of the tree, but I watched as she put down two bowls on the floor for some dogs and another she set up on the shelf above the reach of the dogs. I climbed up on the porch and lifted the bowl off the shelf. It looked good, and as hungry as I was, it smelled even better. I was looking for a chair to sit in and a quiet spot to say grace when I looked down and saw the two dogs eating the same food that there was for me on the shelf. There wasn't such a surprise in that. People didn't buy dog food in the sack like they do now. Dogs mostly ate the leftovers from the table. But what hit me was that she expected that I would eat out on the porch with her dogs. I didn't have to eat in their dining room, but back in their kitchen would have been all right. I told myself that I was good enough to eat a meal with people, not dogs. I set the bowl back on the shelf. Being hungry, that wasn't so easy. I know she didn't plan to insult me. She just didn't know better. Still, she could believe what she wanted. But I wasn't an animal, and I wasn't going to eat with dogs. If I did, she'd go on believing that way. And maybe she would have been right. Late in the afternoon, she came by. Didn't you see the lunch I left on the porch? I nodded. I saw the dogs on the porch. Well, the lunch on the shelf was for you. It was a good lunch. Thank you. I'm sure it was. It's just that I don't eat with dogs. And as I said that, I looked her straight in the eye. I could tell she understood what I meant. She got angry and red in the face, but I didn't turn away. I didn't look down. I eat with people. I'm a human being. At my words, her face tightened, and her look changed to meanness and anger. From her mother and father and back through her grandparents, I could see a hundred years of anger and fear coming out towards me. I stood up to it and repeated, I'm a human being. She was so angry she couldn't speak. I waited. Finally, in a cold tone, she said, you don't need to come back here anymore. And I said, that's right, I don't need to. And then George goes on to say, I figure you can't hate someone for what they think and do, but you can hate yourself for the unacceptable ways you react to it. 
in the transformation, the opening into a greatness of heart, there's a great letting go, a release, a relinquishment of much of what we've held on to, much of what we've grasped, often very tightly. There's a release of the contractions of the heart, the past pains, the hurts, the anguish that we've taken in and taken on as mine, as me, as I am. And it's not so easy to relinquish this, this conditioning, these habituated patterns of ourself. But this is what binds the heart. This is what binds the mind. Our commitment to our practice, our willingness to take the journey is what affords the transformation. And it's not so easy at times, but it's very, very well worth it. There's a tremendous fullness of energy which is constituted by great confidence, strength, and a very clear straightforwardness that comes from a loving heart, that comes from the heart of metta. And in closing this evening's talk, I'd like to share a story with you about a young Native American woman named Sue Ann Big Crow. Suan was born on March 15th in 1974 on the Pine Ridge Reservation. She grew up with her sisters on the reservation in her mother's three-bedroom house. Suan's <coughs> mother, Chick Big Crow, was known to be quite a strict mother. Her daughters always had to be in the house or in the yard by the time the streetlights came on. The only after-school activities that she let them take part in were the structured and chaperoned kind, unsupervised wandering, and later cruising around in cars were completely out. Sue Ann said that she and her sisters had to come up with their own fun because their mother wouldn't let them socialize outside of school. Chick Big Crow was quite strongly anti-drug and alcohol, belonging to the small but adamant minority on the reservation that takes this stance. When Sue Ann was nine years old, she was staying with her godmother on New Year's Eve when the woman's teenage son came home drunk and shot himself in the chest. The woman was too distraught to do anything. So Sue Ann called the ambulance and the police and cared for her godmother until other grown-ups arrived. Perhaps because of this incident, Sue Ann became as opposed to drug and alcohol as her mother was. She gave talks on the subject to school and youth groups and even made a video urging her message. Rob Bradford, a former Pine Ridge teacher and coach who was also a friend of the Big Crow family, was once asked whether Sue Ann's public advocacy on the issue wasn't risky given the prominence of alcohol in the life of the reservation. 
You have to understand, Ralph said, that Sue Ann didn't respond to peer pressure. Sue Ann was peer pressure. She was the backbone of any group she was in, and she was way wiser than her years. As strongly as Sue Ann's mother forbade certain activities, she encouraged her daughters in sports. And at one time or another, they did, did them all. Cross-country running, and track, and volleyball, and cheerleading, and softball, and basketball. When Sue Ann was in the fifth grade, she heard somewhere that to improve your dribbling, you should bounce a basketball a thousand times a day with each hand. She performed this daily exercise faithfully on the cement floor of the patio. And her mother and sisters got very tired of the sound. So for variety, she would shoot layups against the gutter and the drain pipe until they came loose from the house and had to be repaired. Some people who live in cities and towns near Indian reservations treat their Indian neighbors decently, and some don't. Some people in South Dakota hate Indians unapologetically and will tell you why. And in their voices you can hear a particular American meanness that's centuries old. When teams from Pine Ridge play non-Indian teams, the question of race is always there. When Pine Ridge is the visiting team, Usually, the hosts are courteous and the players and fans have a very good time. But Pine Ridge coaches know that occasionally, at away games, their kids will be insulted. Their fans will feel unwelcome. The host's gym will be dense with hostility. And the referees will call fouls on Indian players every chance they get. Sometimes in a game between Indian and non-Indian teams, the difference in race becomes an important and distracting part of the event. One place where Pine Ridge teams sometimes got harassed was the high school gymnasium in Leed, South Dakota. In the fall of the late 1980s, the Pine Ridge Lady Thorpes went to Leed to play a basketball game. Sue Ann was a full member of the team by then. She was a freshman. She was 14 years old. Getting ready in the locker room, the Pine Ridge girls could hear the din from the lead fans. They were yelling fake Indian war cries. The usual plan for the pregame warm-up was for the visiting team to run onto the court in a line, take a lap or two around the floor, shoot some baskets, and then go to their bench at courtside. And after that, then the home team would come out and do the same, and then the game would begin. Usually the Lady Thorpes lined up for their entry more or less according to height, which meant that the senior, Donnie DeCorey, who was one of the tallest, went first. As the team waited in the hallway leading to the locker room, the heckling got louder. Some of the fans were waving food stamps, a reference to the reservations receiving federal aid. Others were yelling, where's the cheese? The joke being that if Indians were lining up, it must be to get some commodity cheese. The lead high school band had joined in with fake Indian drumming and a fake Indian tune. Donnie DeCorey looked out the door and told her teammates, I can't handle this. 
Suan quickly offered to go first in her place. She was so eager that Donnie became suspicious. Don't embarrass us, Donnie told her. Suan said, I won't. I won't embarrass you. So Donnie gave her the ball, and Suan stood first in line. She came running onto the court, dribbling the basketball, with her teammates running behind. On the court, the noise was deafening. Suan went right down the middle and suddenly stopped when she got to center court. Her teammates were taken by surprise, and some of them bumped into each other. Suan turned to Donnie DeCorey and tossed her the ball. And then she stepped into the jump ball circle at center court, facing the lead fans. She unbuttoned her warm-up jacket and took it off and draped it over her shoulders and began doing the Lakota shawl dance. Suan knew all of the traditional dances she'd competed in many powwows as a little girl. And the dance that she chose was a young woman's dance, graceful and modest and show-offy all at the same time. I couldn't believe it. She was powwowing like get-down, Donnie DeCorey says. And then Suanne started to sing, and she began to sing in Lakota, swaying back and forth in the jump ball circle, doing the shawl dance and using her warm-up jacket for a shawl and the crowd went completely silent. All that stuff, the the lead fans were yelling. It was like she reversed it somehow, a teammate said. In the sudden quiet, all they could hear was her Lakota song. Suan dropped her jacket, took the ball from Donnie DeCorey, ran a lap around the court, dribbling expertly and fast and the audience began to cheer and applaud. And she sprinted up to the basket, went up in the air and laid the ball through the hoop, with the fans cheering loudly. Of course, Pine Ridge went on to win the game. The person who transmitted this story said that he couldn't find evidence of a single act as elegant, as generous, or as transcendent as Sue Ann's dance at center court in the gym at Leed. And I agree. That was Sue Ann's lion's roar. There's a fullness of energy and a confident way to walk our human path when the feeling of loving-kindness is strong. And the Buddha called this tremendous fullness of energy the lion's roar. He said that when he himself spoke, it was like the lion's roar in the jungle because the power behind his words was born out of loving care and great compassion. The real results of practice often come as a surprise. You encounter a difficult situation and do what seems to come naturally. And then after the fact, 
realize you handled the situ- situation very differently from the way you used to. The natural, effortless expression of a clearly focused, mindful attention, loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity is the true result. At the time you do, what you do seems perfectly natural. It's no big deal, you might say to a friend who asks how you were able to stay present and do what needed to be done so easily. But it is a big deal because the natural expression of these qualities changes your life and the lives of everyone you encounter. I'd like to close the talk with another Mary Oliver poem. Or part of a poem. This is an excerpt of a poem by Mary Oliver called To Begin With the Sweet Grass. What I loved in the beginning, I think, was mostly myself. Never mind that I had to, since somebody had to. That was many years ago. Since since then I have gone out from my confinements, through with difficulty. I mean the ones that thought to rule my heart, I cast them out. I put them on the mush pile. They will be nourishment somehow. Everything is nourishment somehow or other. And I have become the child of the clouds and of hope. I have become the friend of the enemy, whoever that is. I have become older, and cherishing what I have learned, I have become younger. And what do I risk to tell you this, which is all I know? Love yourself. Then forget it. Then love the world. And let's sit silently for just a moment. 